Leslie, I'm the director of CMEC. Welcome to our podcast. It's been more than a decade since the regime of Colonel Gaddafi was brought to a brutal end. In the 10 years that followed, chaos and intermittent violence has largely reigned in Libya, with fighting between militia, tribes and rival administrations based in the east and in the west. Last year, there was a concerted effort backed by the UN to bring the country under one government, and an interim government was briefly established after aborted presidential elections, which had been scheduled for December last year. But now, once again, it seems Libya has two rival governments with the prospect of further turmoil. So what happens next? What responsibility do we in the West bear? And what can we in the West do, especially now after Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine? To discuss this, we talk to Peter Millett. Peter Millett served as British ambassador to Libya from 2015 to 2018 and played a role in supporting the UN's efforts to negotiate and implement the Libya political agreement. And he managed the return of the British embassy from Tunis to Tripoli. He was British ambassador to Jordan from 2011 to 2015 and high commissioner to Cyprus from 2005 to 2010. Since leaving the foreign office, He has worked as a political, economic and security consultant on the Middle East and especially Libya. And he is currently chairman of the Libya British Business Council. Peter, welcome. Thank you. With all that's been going on in recent months, it feels like Libya has slightly fallen off our radar. Can you give us a brief history of the turmoil in this region since the Arab Spring and just tell us where we are now? Sure. Okay. so in 2011, after Muammar Gaddafi was killed in October 2011. There were attempts to hold elections, create a government, and elections were held in 2012. But behind that scene, there was a fragmentation of the country, fragmentation based partly on ideology, but also regional, social, tribal uh, fragmentation, and a struggle for control. Behind this, is a struggle by various individuals and other groups to control the resources, the oil resources. Libya has the largest oil reserves in Africa, and rather than sharing them, it should be a very easy equation. Largest oil reserves, a population of six and a half, seven million people, it should be quite straightforward to share, but a lot of people just want to have sole control. So it's a battle for control, power, influence and money. So there were elections in 2012, there were further elections in 2014, there was then a civil war in 2014. The UN brought the sides together and achieved the Libya political agreement in December 2015. Again, that government that took over then, the government of national accord, was unable to govern the whole country. The fault of that Libya political agreement was that it it did not include all the stakeholders. And in particular, it was mainly a political agreement. It didn't cover the security sector and it didn't have much in terms of economic reunification either. So it collapsed and then General Heftar attacked Tripoli in 2019. And that civil war led to significant suffering among Libyans, particularly in Tripoli, which was subject to indiscriminate artillery and mortar attack. Eventually, the government of national accord brought in the Turkish support, 
On Heftar's side, he had Russian support, mainly Russian mercenaries. They were pushed back to a middle line. Since then, there's been further efforts to bring about a political settlement. The United Nations established what they called the Libya Political Dialogue Forum, 75 individuals who agreed to create a new unified government back in February last year, 2021. That government of Abdul Hamid Dabeba took control in Libya. The other two rival governments actually gave way. The aim of that government was to hold elections in December of last year. That didn't happen mainly because there were many controversial candidates. They're supposed to be presidential elections. Libya has never had a president. The criteria, the role, the checks and balances weren't properly articulated. There are many, many other more detailed reasons, but it's basically a fight for control of resources. Now, before we go to the present and then the future, I want to touch briefly on the past. And this is a very controversial subject, which could take up the whole podcast. So mm. we won't dwell too long on it. But many might say, look, in an area as big as Libya, with so many different tribes, such a fraught history and so many factions, only a strong man can really control it. The political structures that we might like to see in the UN might be nice, but you need a strong man. Was it a mistake? For the West to get rid of Gaddafi? I don't think it was a mistake because at that time, as we will recall, he was aiming to massacre many, many civilians in Benghazi. And I think if he hadn't been stopped, there would have been a significant loss of life and atrocities, not only in Benghazi, but in other parts of the country as well. Of course, it's not for us to try and pick winners. We have had the debate as to whether we should back Heftar or not. But then when you saw the way this man attacked his own capital city on the day that the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez was in Tripoli, you can't build trust and confidence around an approach which says, I want to be the new military dictator of this country. And many, many Libyans would accept that, that view, that he is not a person that they would trust or have confidence in to rebuild their country. So being a devil's advocate... There have been many, many fatalities after the fall of Gaddafi, both of Libyans and also because order fell apart of people who've been people trafficked across the Mediterranean. A greatly lucrative people trafficking industry has grown up across the coast. People have died in little dinghies. It's raised enormous amounts of money for criminal adventures and ventures. What would you say to someone who says, was it really worth it? I think it certainly was worth it because otherwise we need to have a stable country this close to Europe. Arguably, Libya is already a failed state. And within that failed state, unless you have a government which can be a partner to re for, for the international community to help rebuild that country, you will get this uh, criminality, human trafficking, smuggling, even trading of migrants who all they want is to be able to send money back home. So having a, a stable government which can control the whole country, putting in place a unified hierarchy, a unified economic strategy to rebuild the country, diversify the economy away from dependence on oil, then you might have the prospect of tackling the criminality as well. For people who most of us have heard of Colonel Gaddafi, there may be listeners who haven't heard of General Haftar. And we've talked about him a bit as a kind of potential new strong man. Can you tell us just a bit about Jamal Haftar, where he comes from, and why he's a rival to Tripoli? 
Heftar was part of the army in the 1960s. He was part of the revolution with Gaddafi in 1969. And in the 1980s, Gaddafi sent him to the south of the country to try and take control of uh, part of Chad, and he lost that battle. He was then rescued by the Americans, and he spent 25 years living in Virginia, in Langley, in Virginia, and no doubt he had a very close relationship with the Americans at the time. After the revolution, he came back and took control. He brought security to Benghazi. Just after the revolution, there were major ideological and terrorist attacks in Benghazi, and he brought control and stability to Benghazi. But his approach has always been one that security comes first, politics comes later. And I and various other diplomats met him in 2017, and my successors met him after that, and tried to bring him on board to accept that any military force must have civilian oversight and civilian control. I don't think he ever accepted that view. And he calls his Libyan Arab Armed Forces, it's often called the Libyan National Army, but it's not a Libyan National Army, it is another group of militias with very, very loose control. And it was Heftar who brought in the Wagner mercenaries, who now are a force of their own. They're based in the centre of the country, they have aircraft, we don't know how many mercenaries, maybe even Russian military forces themselves, but it was Heftar who brought those Russians into the country. And he's based now in Tobruk, and his political base, we would say, would be the, the House of Representatives, which is the rival to the political base in Tripoli. His base is actually in a place called Rajba, which is just outside Benghazi. He doesn't have a major power base in Tobruk. Yes, and he has a lot of influence through the House of Representatives. He has MPs that he can deploy. And he has done a deal with the Mizratan Fatih Bashaga, but many of the names in Fatih Bashaga's government are people who have been nominated by Heftar. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and you're listening to CMEX Podcast. We're talking to Peter Millett about Libya's past, present, and most importantly, future. Peter, thank you. That, that was a really helpful resume. It seemed for a while that there was some hope of a unified government, even of sorts, and elections. What went wrong? I think it was a, a, a lack of real understanding among diplomats of the nature of the fragmentation of the country. For many years during the Gaddafi era, diplomats were not really permitted to talk to people. And as in other countries in the Middle East, there were expatriate Libyans who were very articulate and fluent and persuasive who had their own views of uh, how Libya could be put back together again. The West did invest in military training, in programmes and so forth, but a lot of Libyans said, thank you very much, we don't want you to interfere in our country. And I think the sense of the Arab Spring, so-called, was, OK, if that's what you want, we should let you get on, to, on with it. We don't want to put boots on the ground, we don't want to interfere or try and manage your country for you. But unfortunately, that was naive, and the, the Libyans who were put in charge were unable to really unite the country. I think one of the things which is missing, and is missing even now, is national reconciliation. Libya lacks a sense of national identity. Libyans will think of themselves, I think, partly in tribal terms, in regional terms, Mizratan versus Zintani, East against West, and now I think the big division is between the people who want to have elections, 
they see their elected representatives. One assembly elected in 2012, ten years ago, the other assembly elected eight years ago, and see a lack of democratic and constitutional legitimacy. The people want elections. 2.8 million Libyans registered to vote in the elections last December, but you have a group of political elite who don't want to let go of what they've got. Is there a generational divide of it, Libyans who want democracy and those who are happy with the status quo? Yes, a lot of young Libyans that I was privileged to meet. Many of them have been educated in, in the West and they want to have a modern democracy and they want an economy in which they can play a role. In other words, an economy which isn't based on public sector salaries or joining a militia, but a place where they can invest, bring their ideas, have startups, be entrepreneurs, set up private sector business. And I think that shift is an essential shift for any government to shift away from dependence on public sector salaries, where Libya has one of the highest proportions of people who are employed in the public sector, and of course much of it based on either militias or hydrocarbons, towards a more modern economy where young people can invest in IT or any other new type of industry. I want to talk a bit more about economy and your mm -hmm. role with the Business Council sure. a bit later. But just to sum up in a sense where we are, we've decided that Libya is such a huge expanse with such tribal differences and identities is very difficult to unite as a nation without a strong man. We've decided that generally the or consensus, woman. or sorry, <laughs> strong man or woman, all women are strong, yes. um, strong yeah. man or woman, we've decided the consensus is that the price that you, ethical price you would pay for having a strong man or woman in charge is too much. We don't want to back a strong man. But it seems that any other effort to bring the nation together in more Western conventional political sense hasn't yet worked. And madness is doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Would it be time to say, okay, maybe Libya as one big entity is too big? Perhaps there are several different states in this large expanse on the map. What would you say to someone saying that? I, I don't think partition, if you mean a complete partition into three separate independent countries, will ever work. Partly because the oil is dispersed. Much of it is in the south and it goes via pipelines through to the east and west where it is exported or refined. And therefore there is an interdependence which is essential. Uh, and I think at heart Libyans, when you get Libyans next to each other working together, they find common bonds. There is a common bond between them, uh, but not a common bond at political level. I think decentralising the economy is probably necessary. Decentralising it either into three regions or even down to municipalities so that local people can take decisions, can get the resources and they can decide whether they want a hospital, a police station, an airport or a new motorway. I think one of the other things which is missing here, which is important for young people in particular, is accountability. Uh, people can get away. There is a sense of impunity. Militias can get away with threatening people. People in the East, there was a, a female MP, Siham Sergewa, three and a half years ago, who criticised Heftar. She was kidnapped and has not been heard of since. So if that impunity continues, putting in place accountability and respect for human rights, not only for the migrants, of course that's important, but for Libyans also, has to be part of the way Western countries can help to bring Libya into a more modern and credible way of addressing its issues.
So that brings us to where we politically are right now. What's your prognosis for what's going to happen politically? Is there any hope? I think there has to be hope. I think a lot of Libyans have hope. The two rival governments now, the risk there is that could break into conflict. The two rival prime ministers are both Mizratan, and I don't think Mizratans will end up fighting Mizratans. But the risk of other militias, the risk of a small skirmish or a miscalculation turning into conflict is considerable. And nobody wants that to tumble again uh, into violence, least of all the Libyans themselves. The United Nations and uh, the excellent special advisor, Stephanie Williams, has now proposed a new committee to try to arrive at a consensual constitutional basis for elections and for elections to be held very soon, sometime this year. That is the initiative that I think the international community as a whole needs to get behind to bring these conflicting political elites together and to recognise that for the best interests of their country, this is the process led by and mediated by the United Nations, but where Libyans themselves are the ones that have to decide on the future of their country. Peter, we've discussed a bit about how perhaps trade can do what politics can't. What about in the sense of accountability? Can we build accountability systems in trade that can then begin to be introduced into other areas? I think there are many sectors, many areas within trade where a greater interaction, greater exchanges of views and contact can help develop new ideas in Libya itself. Let me give you two examples. In the banking sector, for example, there are two Libyan-owned banks here in the City of London who are subject to the supervision of the Financial Conduct Authority. They have to do due diligence across the board, all the standard procedures, helping to bring those ideas back into Libya by doing training, education, whether it's done by Zoom or by whatever other means, I think can help develop those same procedures in Libya itself. The other is the education sector in general. Many, many Libyans have already been educated at British schools and universities. That brings in new ideas, respect for human rights, democracy, accountability and so forth. Those people can come back uh, and cascade those ideas down into their own society. Um, and developing further the education sector um, I think is uh, of huge advantage both to the UK universities and colleges but also to the Libyans in the longer term as well. Peter, looking more long term, do you think that a change in education may lead in the future to a change in participation in, in politics? Tell us about the presidential candidate slate last time round. Yes, I think one of the reasons why the elections didn't happen in December was the controversy over some of the candidates for president. So you had Saif al-Islam, who is wanted at the International Criminal Court for War Crimes. You had Heftar. And he's the son of Gaddafi, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, yes, back in 2011, he, he backed his father in saying that they were going to go house to house, block to block, and root out all these cockroaches. General Heftar, who arguably committed war crimes, attacking Tripoli indiscriminately in, and killing many civilians as well in 2019 and 20. And then Abdelhamid Debeba, who as Prime Minister had given an undertaking that he would not stand for elections, but then duly did so. I think one of the other aspects here is the lack of really effective civil society. This is where young people coming back and seeing civil society thriving in other countries can grow that grassroots pressure upwards, forming political parties, forming organisations that can press 
for change upwards. Many Libyans that I talk to are actually saying that they want to see parliamentary elections first and give more time to consider the constitutional basis for presidential elections. What would be the powers of the head of state, the head of the executive, the judiciary? That needs to be debated and articulated. That's one view I hear from Libyans. Obviously, it's up to them to reach agreement on how to proceed. Zooming out a bit to more global, Libya is notoriously an arena for various state proxies. Before I go to the various state proxies, can I ask what Libyans think of us, the Brits? Do we have any credibility to engage in the ways you're talking about? Yes, I think the UK is regarded as an influential country. There's a fondness there, particularly in the East, where the Second World War, the huge cemetery in Tobruk, the cemetery in Benghazi, people remember the, the fighting together against the Germans and Italians during the Second World War. I think we're also regarded, unlike many other countries, as not having a particular axe to grind, as being relatively neutral. The Turks, the Gatteries, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, even the rivalry between the French and the Italians means that those countries are not necessarily regarded as honest brokers when it comes to the political divide. I think the UK working with the US, Germany and the United Nations can play a significant role. In fact, many Libyans that I talk to, they want to see the UK a lot more visibly engaged. Now, of course, at the moment, the danger of backing one side or another is considerable. I think working behind the scenes, particularly supporting the United Nations, is something that British ministers, parliamentarians, the ambassador and her team can really do very effectively. The ambassador and her team are doing a fantastic job already, but I think more engagement from London would be very welcome. I'm Charlotte Leslie and you're listening to CMEX podcast. We're talking to Peter Millett, about Libya's past, present and most importantly, future. The Brits were involved in the UN intervention in 2011. So there is a sense that perhaps we should be stepping up more to help build the country that has fallen apart for whatever reasons following the so-called Arab Spring. Let's talk a bit more about the other players in the region. Who are the main players with the main interests and how are they playing out? Well, clearly each country in the region has slightly different objectives. The Italians have a great dependence on oil and, and gas coming out of Libya. They also f are worried about migration. The French too are worried about migration. The Egyptians want to have a stable Libya on their western border because they're particularly interested in security. Um, and so therefore it would be within their incentive to be more Haftar, House of Representatives orientated. Which they have been and which they are, but at the same time they have engaged with the government in Tripoli and I think the Egyptians can play a significant role in bringing these parties together. The Turks have invested very closely in the government in Tripoli but equally I think they can work with Fatih Bashaga. The Russians have been there to disrupt. They've put in the Wagner mercenaries, they've put in their own military forces. Their presence there is not about Libya, it's about Russia and Russia's role in the world and in infiltrating down into the Sahel and into the rest of Africa. And I think the Russians are playing a very damaging and disruptive role. I think we should be worried about Wagner mercenaries on the ground this close to the southern flank of Europe. And what are the Wagner mercenaries' relationship with General Haftar's team and leadership? How does that relationship work? Initially they came in to support Haftar's attack on Tripoli. 
Now they are more or less an independent force. They don't take or get any orders out of Heftar. They do their own thing. They move around in the south. I'm told that they are protecting and supporting Saif al-Islam and his candidacy. I don't have any evidence to support that. But the Russians are there to play a role in support of Russia's objectives in the world, not in support of peace and stability in Libya. Now, in, in Russia's age-old bid to reassert itself after the fall of the Soviet Union against the West, does it then make sense for Russia to destabilise the southern borders of Libya to enable even more of a migrant crisis to go from the Libyan coast into Europe, further destabilise Europe, ferment right-wing groups in Europe concerned about migration? Is that something that we should be worried about as it, with, with an aggressive Russia? It's certainly something that they can do because they have control and they have clients on various parts of the coastline. They could also blockade the oil exports. Uh, and at the time when there's talk about shutting down or restricting Russian oil exports into the West, shutting down the 1.2 million barrels a day coming out of Libya would push the oil price up even higher and impose even greater economic pain on the West. And how does, in, in your view, I mean, as we're speaking, situation in Ukraine is developing very fast, how does the situation of Russia's illegal invasion in Ukraine affect this and affect Russian confidence, do you think? I don't think it affects their confidence at the moment. I think it means that we need to focus on Libya and realise that in addition to what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, it's not parallel, but it is equally dangerous to Europe. The fact that there is this significant Russian presence and if they wanted to, they could further destabilise Libya, but they could also impose further economic pain on Europe. We've talked about Libya's neighbours, and it is, as everyone says, a difficult neighbourhood. Russia has its own interests, and it's understandable that every, every state does have its own interests. What allies would we have in that region, contrary to Russian interests, if it becomes a binary equation? Have we proved ourselves in the West to be reliable enough allies to attract the support of neighbouring countries? I think, you know, we, we have very good relations in Ankara, in Cairo, in Abu Dhabi, in the region as a whole. And we can play a mediating and moderating role, but it has to be in support of the initiatives of the United Nations. Equally, we are still the pen holder in New York on Security Council statements and resolutions. Now, getting anything out of the Security Council at the moment with the relationship with Russia is clearly going to be difficult. But I think there is a significant role there where the UK can work with the neighbourhood because we all have an interest in peace, stability and prosperity in Libya. And that was the role we played in 2015 when the UN was bringing this Libya political agreement together in Sekherat in Morocco. All of these countries did actually come together behind that push for peace and stability. Unfortunately, some of those countries were doing some underhand, doing, saying one thing and doing something else under the table. And that's where I think when we know that that is happening, we need to be more ready to call out the perpetrators and impose sanctions. Obviously not against some of those major countries, but where we see Libyans obstructing the political process. Now that we can do sanctions in our own right, in collaboration with the EU and with the Americans, we should be prepared to do so because it is one of the most significant tools in our toolbox is to impose sanctions on the Libyans who obstruct political progress. The question I want to ask hearing you say that, 
and looking at the failures of our international institutions. Not to say the institutions themselves are failures, but they haven't achieved all we would like them to achieve. Is that it feels like we've been victim of a lot of idealistic wishful thinking and thinking that if we write something on a piece of paper, therefore it is. At the moment we're seeing Russia, I hate this phrase, but creating devastating facts on the ground in Ukraine. We have implemented some sanctions, more than many people thought we would. But as we speak, there is a debate about how we get fighter jets into Ukraine. We have essentially said to the Russians, we're not going to do a no-fly zone. And saying to your enemies exactly what you're not going to do is a novel way of uh, commanding respect and possibly fear from, from your enemies. Do the international organisations, if we're to count for anything at all, in the face of those who just disregard the rules for, the, for might is right, do we need a reset on how we do things? Let me answer that by saying we have to work with the institutions we've got. The UN and the Security Council are flawed. They are now well past their sell-by date. But if we didn't have them, we would want to invent them. Something along these lines. I do think the veto, of the permanent five, is something that should be removed in some way. Uh, although, of course, I don't think the UK has used its veto for many, many years, but other countries have. So I think resetting some of that, but also ensuring that when there is an issue, whether it's Ukraine or Libya or elsewhere, we don't focus only on the political issues, but we bring together the political, the economic and the security, because those three strands are always interlinked and interrelated and you can't solve one without the other. And do you think, looking, we, we talked earlier about the kinds of people and skills that go into the political system in Libya. And I think there are many countries actually in the region who would privately acknowledge that the kinds of people who are in leadership need over time to change, to, to have stability. That perhaps a military training and mindset is not necessarily the best way to, to govern a country. And I think sometimes perhaps even those in those military positions in private would say that. Looking at how we have institutions that are rule-making, rule-abiding, but at the same time not naive and have the muscularity and understanding of a global street fight, which our worst actors see the world politics as. Do you think we need a change in the kind of skill sets that are going into international politics? I see a lot of very brilliant people, very brilliant academics, but I also see skill sets outside that field which understand characters like Putin, like the global dictators who make life difficult, who understand those personalities a little bit better than people whose specialism is academia and academic study. Is there a case, do you think, of bringing a wider skill set into international diplomacy? Because it seems to many people, and I'm thinking, I used to be an MP, of my constituents who are not international security and diplomacy experts, but who have experience in their own ways of this kind of dominance and how to deal with it. Do we need to widen who goes into international politics and policy making? I think we need to widen the way we draw on that wider expertise. I think you do need, in Parliament, but also among diplomatic services, people who develop expertise, whether it's language, regional expertise. But out there, I've always been struck by the expertise in academia, not just in the UK. The think tanks in the UK and in Europe are not used sufficiently. So having a good, detailed discussion, 
drawing on think tank expertise in different countries and then drawing on bringing in representatives of some of these key countries, that can bring in new ideas. It's a sense of knowledge management, if you like, but knowledge management which isn't just based on a short two, three year posting in Libya, but is then using that expertise, managing that knowledge and information in the future, but also drawing on a much wider group of people who know those countries in much greater detail. I've been speaking to Peter Millet, former ambassador to Libya, on the state of Libya today and the state of Libya in the future. Peter, thank you very much for your time and I uh, hope to see you again on a CMEC podcast soon. Thank you very much, Charlotte.